Thank you so much for listening to the American Poetry Review podcast. If you're coming to Philadelphia for the AWP conference, uh, March 23rd to 26th, please seek us out. We will be at the book fair, uh, booth 636, every day of the book fair. I'd be happy to see you there. We're also hosting two events. We are uh, having a 50th anniversary celebration at the conference itself, an on-site event, as they say, in the convention center, uh, which will be featuring poets Major Jackson, Ada Limon, Jason Schneiderman, and Megan Fernandez. And then the same night, March 25th, 7 p.m., we'll be having an off-site event uh, at our home, the Philadelphia Ethical Society, uh, which is celebrating the Honickman First Book Prize. And we'll be featuring the four most recent winners of that, who are Tanum Bambrick, Chessie Normile, Natasha Rao, and Chelsea Harlan. So we would be delighted to see you there. I'm Elizabeth Scanlon, and this is the American Poetry Review Podcast. A couple of weeks ago, podcast co-host Stephen Kleinman and I had the pleasure of sitting down with poet Natalie Shapiro, who appears in our January-February issue, uh, and we really enjoyed having a conversation with her. We are here today with Natalie Shapiro, and I am so excited to have her here. Hello, Natalie. Hi. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's such a pleasure. I'm so glad you're in Philadelphia and that Stephen um, ferried you over here um, so that we could actually talk on the microphone for posterity and all of that. Um, but before I get ahead of myself, I should say officially, Natalie Shapiro is the author of Popular Longing, Hard Child, and No Object. She uh, is a teacher of poetry, and she also appears in the January-February 2022 issue. Um, and we're just so delighted to have her here. Um, to begin with, or I should say to start, can we listen to you read the poem Start that appears in this issue? Sure. Thank you. Start. I don't like how the second you don't die, you're a survivor. There should be some between period where you don't have to be that quite yet. Like how when wild garlic gets torn out by the roots, the life within it doesn't beam straight into some other shoot. There's a minute or river of minutes. Everyone needs to slow down, debrief. No new sobriquet at this time, please. The only speed I want in my life is to sleep and then wake with a start, the way they do in representations of dreaming on film. Not wake as I do now, lightly from the nightmare lip raw in a haze of being unsure if it all was real, which means it was. Thank you. Thank you so much. So of course, after listening to to start, I, I feel like we have to talk about anxiety. Like I feel that something that I appreciate so much about your poems is is the this sounds strange to say, but like the enactment of anxiety in them, of like sort of being present for the thought process of of um, those kind of questions that keep you awake. Um, how do I turn that into a question? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> how do you feel about that? Yeah, how do you feel about that? No, I, I, I suppose, I, I mean, I'm thinking of that poem and also um, uh, how do you get this number is also in this issue and, and that there's a, a kind of um, uh, a mind at work that I, that I really enjoy. Do you do you think that anxiety lends itself to poetry? I mean, are those are those overlapping impulses or or are they in conflict, I guess? 
is what I'm wondering. Yeah, no, um, it's a good question. I guess I don't, I don't find them to be in conflict. Like, I think something that, um, like, I've become kind of more conscious of recently is, like, feeling super uncomfortable inside of poems Mm -hmm. (laughs) and just, um, like, trying to kind of, uh, make the whole experience of the poem feel like it's just like this race to get out of there like before some door closes and you're trapped in there forever right it's like an escape room (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's 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 such a good image uh the idea of 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 like the journey is trying to get out (laughs) It, it makes me think in in that poem in particular but i think also in a lot of your other work that it's such a contained poem in one way, and yet we move so incredibly far from the start to the end. Um, this is, it's hard to not just be, uh, to be a fan, but um, <laughs> it, reading through your most recent collection, Popular Longing, um, and these new poems, there's, there's a sense that like, and, and I liked how Elizabeth said the, the mind at work, because it feels often like the trigger for a poem could be um, nearly anything. And then it's the thinking that you have to do. And I I like that idea that we're rushing out of the poem within that context. I have a question that reminds me, I have a question about when you said the trigger. the use of all caps in your poems is something that I think is like a really distinctive move and it and does not ever seem shouty to me, like the way that we think of all caps, like in texting or something. But I, I have noticed that there there's a, um, a, a preponderance of like signs or headlines or, or outbursts that um, occur in all caps in your poems. And do you... Um, I guess was was that was that a like an incoming data kind of thing or an outgoing design thing? I may I suppose it has to be both, right? But does that does that make sense? Yeah, that yeah. totally makes sense. I think it's um I, I think of it as much more incoming data than outgoing design. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that it's just like I try to use it for like yeah, exactly as you're saying, for different kinds of signage or like snippets of text or dialogue. Um or just like basically things, <laughs> I try to use it for things where I'm like, I, w- I cannot get this out of my head, though I wish I was like not thinking about it. Right. It's like how it exists right. in my head yeah. is like in this really um, kind of like stubborn and sticky way. Um, and so it's like been a helpful, almost like a categorization system where it, like if you are because um, I feel like a lot of those things are like some kind of um, attack almost and you're like well I can't fend this off because it's so it's stronger than I am but at least I can categorize it the, like the, like the attack is like the like the signage like yeah. the sort of like the encounter right? <laughs> yeah, yeah that yeah I see I see what you're saying there that there well and also I think that um, I mean, as a reader, I think that something that I was noticing, too, in like the recurrence of all caps in these poems is is how often it's um, kind of an inanimate speaker. Right. That it's that it's either is a sign or it's a a machine of some kind, you know, a a text or or something like that. And it really got me thinking 
about our interaction with inanimate language, right? Or I guess I'm not saying that quite correctly. Uh, that that there's like voice and no voice, right? But yeah. that but that sometimes that that interaction, that attack, can take root. You know, it takes root in your mind in a different sort of way. Um, I I'm thinking. I'm trying. I'm actually just scrolling through here. I'm trying to think. We published a poem of yours called "Flowers Would Have Killed You." Yeah, that um, that I I just love. Um, uh, but also here, let me let me pull it up. Can I pull it <laughs> yeah. up? Um, Stephen, take the wheel. Let me find this poem. Well, um, I, I was just thinking that we needed to hear a poem to yes to sort of describe some of the things that that we've been talking about. So let's let Natalie choose. Uh, Natalie, here, would I'll, you I'll choose? read it. I can read okay. the flowers would have killed. Oh, you great. Poem. Okay. Flowers would have killed you. The river is heavy with phosphorus and scum. It causes liver damage if ingested. I don't know exactly whose runoff it is, but so long as they're taking press photos with prize-winning children and donating sizable sums to the ballet, I take no issue. River's yours. Once I saw a guy struggling to talk his way out of some base thing he'd done, and his underwhelmed companion said to him, flowers would have killed you. Now I say it all the time. The councilman announces he's sorry for taking advantage of the district's trust, or the paper issues the mother of all retractions, and I'm right there at the window readying myself for the knock and the spray of larkspur and tea rose you shouldn't have <laughs> so i mean that is like the the all caps part here is the flowers would have killed you uh-huh. and yeah i mean it's like it's it i think you're right about the it kind of being like an inanimate um speech or like a speech that doesn't have a voice because even when it's spoken by a person it's like some kind of prefab thing so uh-huh. when people are kind of like speaking in like something that's like aphoristic or idiomatic or like some kind of expression that's that is fully formed it's like they're not talking in their voice they're just like temporarily possessed by some like demon of the culture that's like that's like blasting that out of their mouth and then it like leaves their body and goes into someone else so that's how i feel about those little moments the demonic possession of aphorism um well, I, I have a question. Um, I think that that quite often I find myself laughing in your poems. But how dare like, you? I know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, not necessarily um, that I think that you were laughing when you wrote them. But I wonder how you think about humor in your writing, or if you think about it at all. Yeah, I mean, I think about it a lot. I mean, I I like the. I mean, I, I like the structure of jokes, and um, sometimes I feel like I try to write, like, a lot of, um, like, near-miss jokes or, like, unfunny <laughs> unfunny jokes right. where uh, it has, like, the feel of, like, a setup and a punchline, and just that, like, I, I, I mean, I think it's, like, kind of interesting how we're attuned enough to that setup that anything that takes that form can, like like we laugh at it I laugh at at it right. um and then it's you can kind of play around inside of it by if you're like well if I know people are gonna laugh at it I can put like anything in there right. and I kind of I mean it's something that like kind of uh intensified from my experience doing poetry readings because I had a poem in my first book that had 
some jokes at the beginning and then it became serious at the end mm-hmm. and I found that when I did it like because you're like with anything else in a poem you're the beginning is like kind of you're teaching the reader how to read this particular poem and people right. are you know um sharp and astute and they're acclimating to like uh the kind of cues and signals that the poem is sending so because this poem was funny at the beginning but serious at the end when I would do readings from it people would laugh at the beginning and then they would just keep laughing they would laugh through the whole end of the poem and it was like initially it was like horrifying like I was like I am so uncomfortable that I'm reading this thing that I think that is very upsetting and then people are laughing at it Mm. but then I kind of like got into it (laughs) like it was sort of like if you can't beat them join them I was like what is into the square exactly exactly you're like what's the what's the most (laughs) awful thing that I can get people to laugh at yeah yeah no that 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 makes so much sense to me I mean I really do especially in the context of that live interaction right where you you kind of can't help but be changed by the energy in the room um especially when it's as palpable as laughter right yeah Yeah. and it's like I mean I I feel like I just as like for myself I feel like I seek seek out that like bad that Mm -hmm. like bad feeling (laughs) I want to feel that bad feeling it's so compelling it's (laughs) so compelling um, I mean, that actually also leads me to, to ask a question about um, the idea of persona, because in, you know, in your poems, you are frequently using the first person I, um, but I, but in no way does it, to me, feel like confessional, if that's even a word that we use anymore. I mean, confessional even seems so gendered, right? I mean, was it, it wasn't it always kind of, I'm, I'm asking five different questions here. Um, <laughs> Uh, the historians disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do. Th- I think that it's it's uh, it's a really riveting kind of first person eye that you're using, though, because it ha- it seems to have no investment in being sympathetic. I guess is the point that I'm yeah. trying to make. Um, and so, uh, what is that persona voice doing for you? Yeah, um, it's it's definitely like an an, an antagonistic right. persona, <laughs> um, right. and um, I think that in some ways it's like I think the kind of like cerebral answer is that it's like part of a project that is about norms of communication and how they fail us, right. <laughs> and um, so trying to kind of um write these poems that are like that feel like a moment when you have to communicate like in a constricted way Mm -hmm. (laughs) um in some kind of prescribed way um but you're trying to convey something that is not acceptable to like Mm -hmm. discuss in that context so that like those moments I'm like super interested in like I'm really really interested in passive aggression um and um and like I have I mean I I'm like I'm in you know I've like done you know I'm interested in like reading um you know non-literary texts like that that look at Mm -hmm. um like communication norms and and their 
kind of failures and failings and like what are the possibilities of operating within them like in different kinds of like labor contexts there's a lot of um like sociological um or anthropological work on I this. feel like this is uh forgive me if this is 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 not uh too big a, a leap but I feel like there's a segue here which is that I only recently learned that you also have a law degree yeah how did that happen was that in like mid poetry uh writing and teaching or did you set out to practice law and then uh veered off the road into poetry yeah so I mean so I I actually I did practice law like I was a you lawyer did? Oh. yeah yeah um no yeah uh, secrets revealed <laughs> I <know>. <laughs> <laughs> um, no I worked for um for an amazing organization in DC I'll plug them on this podcast <laughs> Americans United for Separation of Church and State oh wow um, wonderful and they do really good civil rights work around the country um, but yeah, I went to, I mean, I think I, I was always interested in law and I wasn't, um, like sure what I was going to do. So, um, uh, so after I got my MFA, then I became a lawyer mm-hmm. and I, um, yeah. And I, I did litigation for a little bit and then I had the chance to kind of like do a, do this fellowship and and take a break um and then I just never went back to it <laughs> yeah yeah well you're still far more accomplished than your average poet I have to say no, no I think I think that's really um I mean that's really intriguing to me and really and and kind of lovely in a way because if if not to you know wax too um, lofty, but I do think that law and poetry come from a similar place, right, in our relationship to language. And so I think that that's... And like legal writing, I, I having known almost nothing here, <laughs> which is my favorite position, uh, it, legal writing is relatively formulaic, but it is it has intention to communicate something, right? That's like a similarity between... Well, I mean, it, it seeks and, to and define, right? I mean, it seeks to to create like new structures by how you say it. I mean, if I'm if I'm not, that's an oversimplification, this obviously. Is, but is, we're really just yeah, no, no, no. I totally, I, I actually think that they. She knows what I mean. <laughs> I do. No, I think that they actually are very similar inquiries in some ways. Obviously, like really divergent in others. Right. But you know, like a lot of, um, you know, the area of law that I practice, which is, um you know, it's called establishment clauses, like the part of the First Amendment that um, sort of mediates the relationship between um, religion and the state. Like uh-huh. it, um, it's so much of it is about symbolism and about like understanding Absolutely. like the changing meaning of symbols in shifting cultural contexts and like what does it mean that there's like a, you know, like a cross on a grave in a military cemetery. Like some people are going to say, that means that someone died and other people are going to say that means that a Christian person died. And I think a lot of those questions about like how does culture inform language and how does language inform culture, it like comes up in, in both pursuits. Yeah. Back to the joke structure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jokes about graves. Yeah. What could be <laughs> and on that note, no, but seriously, I, I do have another um, fan request if you if you would read another poem for us. Um, I'm I love all your work, but I'm especially uh, obsessed with your book Hard Child. Um, and the, the very first poem in there is called My Hand and Cold. Right? Yeah. Could you read that for us? 
My hand and cold. Of surgeons putting their knives to erroneous body parts, stories abound. So can you really blame my neighbor for how heading into the operation he wrote across his good knee, not this knee? The death of me. I'm never half so bold. You will feel, the doctor said, my hand and cold. And I thought of the pub quiz question, which three countries are entirely inside of other countries? I bought the bound 1,000 names for baby, made two lists. One if she's born breathing, one if not. The second list was longer, so much that I might call her, if she were never to bear the name, never to turn to it, suffer shaming, mull its range and implications, blame it, change it, move away, to San Marino, Vatican City, Lesotho. Thank you. I, I'm... I'm just absolutely in awe of that poem. I really not to that not to um, you know fangirl, but we do. We like to do that <laughs> no, on this thanks. podcast. But I really do the, like the way the puzzle pieces of the poem fit together, and 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 uh, as we were saying before, like really teach us how to read it as it's happening. Like it really is um, um, so so lovely and so intricate. Um, um, can I ask you a question? Of course. Okay. So um, I guess uh, something that um, has kind of been on, I mean, this touches a little bit on like the sort of question of that you were asking about persona. Yeah. Um, and I was just discussing it um, with someone else. But how, like, how do you each think about the negotiation of your actual lives Mm -hmm. (laughs) both into like into your work but also into sort of who you are publicly as an artist because I so I'm like as you'll um as you will uh note from (laughs) all the things that I requested to be edited out of this podcast (laughs) completely fair (laughs) I yeah I am like a like i am a very private person but i think it's it's in it's increasingly kind of not impossible but but complicated to kind of like get your arms around like some sort of distinction like unless you write under a pseudonym and wear a wig and kind of are, are like i'm a, sep- a completely separate right. individual right like how like how do you both sort of think about those things i think about it a lot i think about it a lot um in i think most with regard to being a, a parent and, yeah. and a writer. And I think that I don't have any like hard and fast rules, but I have made observations about what feels okay and what doesn't feel okay. Like I, um, unlike some people who feel totally fine and, and about using names in their poems, like I find that like uh, if I'm writing about something, I feel okay about saying my son. Mm-hmm. I do not feel okay about using his name mm-hmm. in the poem. Um, and and that construct I know might seem thin, but to me I feel like the person who is my son uh, exists in a different way to the reader than actually naming that person, you know? Um, and, and also even to me, like the, the person that is, is walking around and living the life as my son in a piece of writing is not necessarily the same person, you know, who lives in the world. Um, so that I mean, that might seem like a very lawyerly distinction. <laughs> no, 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 no. It doesn't at all because 
it's really an important one that um uh well, uh when you say my son and that hits the page mm-hmm. to you that son has a name mm-hmm. but once it's on the page it's it's just the sun mm-hmm. and it's right. it's a symbol of the sun exactly and it's not it no longer exists as your son right i mean that right. that uh, that's how i think of the things for me i i recently wrote a poem uh that's like a very personal um uh, uh a family story like a really hard family story maybe one of our harder family stories and um I guess I'm still struggling with it, but I wanted to, I, I know that I spent a long time trying to make sure that I got it right, that I got like, mm. th- that, but like not the story of it, because that's easy to get right. And then I kind of want most of that to go away. And what's left is like that, the feeling that it left, like the destruction of life that it, that, that story left. I was gonna say, I think too, and I think that this, I mean, maybe I'm projecting, but I find this in your poems too, Natalie, is that like, I think that a lot of it matters, uh, or a lot of it uh, uh, shifts with tone, right? Because I think that there are some poems or stories in which like, uh, it can refer to someone or something that happened in your life, but if it's clear that you're kidding, or if it's clear that you're um, um, that this is some sort of allegorical more than literal, like I, I think that those those things matter too, right? Because I think the only hard line for me is that it feels like a violation if the piece of writing supposes or presents itself as as factual you know then Mm. that feels like almost invariably a violation because it because it takes away from somebody else like their um experience of the facts yeah does that that Mm -hmm. make sense um yeah i don't know what how do how do you write around it do you feel that you like avoid certain topics or certain um yeah. Yeah, I mean I think in some ways I feel that yeah, if if you I feel that sort of uh maintaining some kind of persona gives um like either the actual thing or the illusion of sort of safety if mm. you want to like I'm always like I want to put stuff in poems that I don't want to um be uh, I don't want them to follow me around, right? right? You know, and it's like if you are just like, well, this is a persona, then it then it doesn't feel like you're. Um, There's nothing there to fact check, right? Exactly, right. exactly. <laughs> you you always have like an alibi when someone's like, "Is this autobiographical?" You're like, "What?" Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, and but, so, yeah, it's like a it's like a like a safe deposit box that right. holds all of your right. your papers that no Lock one else is allowed tight. to look at. Yeah. The other thing, though, that I think that there's a question inherent in this conversation, which is, um, there's the idea of the confessional poem. Mm. I don't actually know that I personally believe it exists. Yeah, I I was 
I, I, I feel like every poem is a mask and it's mm-hmm. there's a question of how much you're acknowledging the mask or not, how much you're wearing the mask or not. A hundred percent. I think that's what we started to say earlier when we were talking about the genderedness of, of uh-huh. like the term confessional, because I think that like it was always an error. Right. I mean, I, yes. I is it is it understood commonly now or, or not? In my head, it seems like it was always an error to to label it as like right. this is a person who's like flashing her naked soul, you know, <laughs> and yeah. I say her because it was usually there was levied at women right? about that yeah. term. And it was it was definitely pointed at, at mm-hmm. um, female writers. Mm-hmm. Um I have a student, I want to tell you this story. I have a student who's writing about um, uh, Pokemon. Okay. And uh, there's one Pokemon. I know nothing about any of that. You will. I was say, I know more than I care to. <laughs> That's right. It's coming uh, for you, Stephen. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> I know nothing about, about uh, Pokemon, but he's writing about this one character that wears the skull of his mother as oh, a shield. Shit. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> that is... I mean, Heavy. mask much? <laughs> yeah. right. And he yeah. throws a bone hmm. that um, works like a boomerang. And I'm like, okay, so he throws, he's wearing the skull of his mother as a shield, and he throws this bone, presumably, of his mother that comes back to him. Every time he throws it, it comes back wow. to him. Right? And it's like, it's just like That's everything funny. is a mask yeah. to me. But also, it's like I kind of wish I didn't know that that was like sourcing from Pokemon because it's like (laughs) it's such a. I mean, it's a fantastic set of images. It doesn't. It doesn't matter that it's coming from Pokemon, actually. But it's. it's... I feel like every once in a while I wear a mask of my mother, and I throw all of the things that she gave me out into the world, and then they come back. And sometimes it's great, and sometimes it's not. Yeah, and so it goes. The American Poetry Review podcast is a Radio Kismet podcast. For more great shows, check out radiokismet.com.